السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ یو آر ٹیونڈ ان ٹو دا پروگرام تزکیہ آن چینل اسلام انٹرنیشنل اٹ از دا ٹوینٹی ایتھ آف رجب فورٹین تھرٹی ٹو کورسپونڈنگ ود تھرٹی ایتھ آف جون ٹوینٹی الیون دس از اے پروگرام دیٹ کمز آؤٹ لائف فرام آور اسٹوڈیوز یا ان جوہینز برگ چینل اسلام انٹرنیشنل اینڈ وی کنیکٹ اپ ود آور شیخ کمال الدین احمد ہوز پریزنٹلی ان لندن Uh, I just want to give you the line for any communication you have with the Sheikh. Don't hesitate to SMS us on 0027-8466-8899. I repeat that and that's 0027-8466-8899. If you have any input for the program, don't hesitate to contact us on ii at ciinetwork.net and for audio streaming you can click on to www.ciibroadcasting.net yes this is the program tazkiyah on channel islam international now sheikh kamaluddin ahmed was not with us last week anyway we had uh, sheikh uh, junaid mullah filling in and uh, we had a wonderful talk on uh, salat that he had given and he had spoken about uh, the virtue of salat and various hikmats and wisdom behind the various aspects of salat and uh, today inshallah Aziz, we'll be again connecting up with our sheikh and my engineer signal to me that we have our sheikh online but before i do that i just want to uh, you to take your pens and just make a quick note and i'll repeat that again during the course of the program um www.islamicspirituality.org Now, if you can go onto this particular website, and the Sheikh is going to be giving us more details, inshallah, Aziz, on this. Uh, inshallah, Aziz, we, Sheikh will be having a, a program uh, uh, on tafsir, inshallah, Aziz. And another website is Zainab, that's Z-Z-A-Y-Z-A-Y-N-A-B, academyonline.org uh, Sheikh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh How are you doing, Mother? Alhamdulillah, I'm very well, Sheikh. Just, just missed you last week. Wa Sheikh, I have uh, mentioned that program of uh, tafsir that you will be having online if you can just give us the dates again and then we're going to repeat you know those 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 websites where you know you uh, listeners can get on online and then uh, you know be connected to you with the tafsir program when does this tafsir program commence inshallah Aziz? inshallah we're uh, going to be doing uh, what we call a dorai tafsir dorai quran going over the entire Qur'an al-Kareem, inshallah, starting from Wednesday, July 20th, mm-hmm. and this will be daily, every day, seven days a week, including Saturdays and Sundays and Fridays, mm-hmm. and uh, it will last all the way up to um, August, uh, Thursday, August 18th, inshallah. The timings for that will be... Uh, from 10 a.m. to it's three hours. Yeah. So in the UK timing, it would be 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Okay. For South Africa, it would be 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. And in Pakistan time, that would be 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Subhanallah, that's wonderful. And inshallah, it will be uh, broadcast live on the internet. So yeah. then anybody who visits either one of those two websites 
Mm-hmm. There will be a link there where they can listen to it live. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try mm-hmm. to post the recordings up as well as soon as we can. Alhamdulillah, that will be wonderful. That will be wonderful. So it's going to be a non-stop program from 10 to 1, a three-hour program, Sheikh? Yeah, inshallah, yes. Inshallah. Well, what dedication. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give barakah to you and to all of us who are going to benefit from that particular program. But I'll repeat that again. That's the website to get on to www.islamicspirituality.org and Zainab, Z-A-Y-N-A-B, Academy, online.org. And the South African Times at 10 a.m., to, uh, the, the, the UK time is 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. South African time, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And, of course, Pakistan time will be from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sheikh, uh, we have a question here for you from one of our listeners. And it says, Assalamu alaikum, respected Sheikh. It appears that many ulama, when discussing youth, seem to be referring to males only and not females. Are the provisions regarding female youth any different from the males in Islam? Salams. And please comment on the desirability or otherwise of university education for young females, especially in the fields of medicine and sciences. The intention is to serve and benefit Muslim female patients eventually. So there's two questions we have here, Chef, for you. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. There's the second one. Go ahead. Uh, no, that, that, that's, that's the one, Sheikh. It's actually, the first of all, female youth, where do they fit in? And, of course, university education for young girls in the field of medicine and sciences, where they can be of service to the community. Sheikh, can just elaborate on that? Okay, um, the first, in response to the first part of the question, um, there are obviously many, many things that are common to both men and women, and uh, especially among the youth that have no real difference pertaining to gender. Our listener may have felt, uh, even perhaps with me on the program or with other uh, speakers she may have listened to, that those speeches mm-hmm. that have titles with the word youth in them are sometimes or often more seem to be more directed towards the men. Mm-hmm. It may simply just be because these talks take place in front of a live audience, mm-hmm. and you may be hearing a recording of it later, but in that actual audience that was present, mm-hmm. uh, it's a good chance that there were perhaps only men present mm-hmm. at that audience. For example, we recently, in Bolton, which is a small town in England, mm-hmm. we gave a talk there, and there were only men who were present. Mm-hmm. So naturally, the primary audience in a live talk mm-hmm. is those people who are sitting in front of one, and then later the recording makes its way through different means to different people. Mm-hmm. Second reason might be that, and, and that's going to lead into the second part of her question, mm-hmm. the second reason might be that young men mm-hmm. seem to be more uh, affected by the pollution, the spiritual pollution in the society around them. Mm-hmm whether, again, they're living in non-Muslim lands or very westernized, secularized parts of the Muslim world. Mm. Now, getting into her second question. Okay, so the first thing I would say is that, no, a lot of the things, nonetheless, a lot of the things that we do say, perhaps to male audiences, Mm. increasing numbers of women are actually experiencing the same problems Mm -hmm. and have the same illnesses and therefore they need the same cures. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why increasing number of Muslim women Mm -hmm. are facing the same problems and therefore 
in terms of discussions of youth, men and women should no longer be separated is because increasingly number of Muslim women are going to universities. Mm-hmm. And see, when you have Muslim women exposing themselves to many times, I use this metaphor of radiation. Mm-hmm. And when now when you have women exposing themselves to the radiation of an environment where there's not gender segregation, mm-hmm. and then where maybe in a more traditional Muslim society, a woman may have gotten married at 18 or 20 or 22 because she's a university-going Muslim woman, so she may not get married till 22, 24, 27, mm-hmm. and therefore delaying the age of marriage, just like it created certain problems in men, mm-hmm. it can create the same or similar problems in women. Mm-hmm. So that then leads us to her second question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that anyone... Well, no, I don't think that I could give a blanket mm-hmm. fatwa or ruling mm-hmm. for every single woman who is considering any degree at all. Mm-hmm. I can just give some general guidelines, mm-hmm. and then I would recommend uh, strongly that any individual Muslim woman who is considering mm-hmm. uh, pursuing a degree in higher education will have to consult ulama who can understand her, her situation, her family background, mm. who can understand the type of degree program and the type of university she will be attending, mm. can also identify what the need really is or is not to have Muslim women working in that profession, mm. right? Mm. So for her to really discover the answer to her question, she's going to have to ask somebody about her particular situation. In other words, this has to be done on a case-by-case basis. Mm. But I can offer some general guidelines. Yeah. The first thing I would say is that, uh, and you know, very contrary to maybe a sort of a Western or Westernized mentality, there is no, as far as Islam is concerned, there is no gender superiority of men over women when it comes to knowledge. Mm-hmm. A woman can be as knowledgeable, as academic, as intelligent, as erudite as a man. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there is no preference in terms of science subjects for men and arts or humanities subjects for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and men and women can equally excel mm-hmm. potentially in either or both of those fields. Mm-hmm. Now, when you come to the issue of women studying medicine, mm-hmm. so now I will just offer some comments specifically about Muslim women who want to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly, there is something what we call the fadl al that there is a uh, communally obligatory mm-hmm. need, in other words, the community, the ummah needs mm-hmm female Muslim doctors of every kind, mm-hmm. not just OB, not just obstet- obstetricians and gynecologists, mm-hmm. but also dentists, anesthesiologists, cardiologists, and every branch of medicine, mm-hmm. the dean of Islam would want that there should be female Muslim practitioners mm-hmm. of every field. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. if there are enough uh, female non-Muslim, mm-hmm. non-Muslim female practitioners, mm-hmm to serve the Muslim community, in other words, if wherever, the, whether they're living in the Muslim country or a non-Muslim country, if Muslim women have access mm-hmm. to female medical practitioners, mm-hmm. whether it's Muslim or not Muslim, mm-hmm. and that access has been there for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. so all reasonable statistics would suggest that that access will continue for the next 10, 15, 20 years, then it's no longer a farda kifaya in the sense that it's, it's being fulfilled, it remains a farda kifaya, mm-hmm. but it's something that is being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So the argument for demand mm-hmm. is significantly reduced mm-hmm. if we can say honestly, yes, there are enough women doctors out there 
Uh, in other words, there's a practicing Muslim woman in London, mm. and she has to undergo some type of medical procedure which requires part of her uh, self to be exposed. Mm. If she knows that I can easily, or with some moderate but tolerable level of difficulty, mm. I can successfully be seen mm. by a female doctor, mm. even if it's not Muslim, then it means the duty is being fulfilled. Now then, we could speak of an extra benefit of knowing that the doctor should be not just a woman, but also a Muslim. Mm -hmm. In order to get that extra benefit, what is the cost we're going to have to pay? Mm -hmm. So now I will talk about the cost of going to medical school. If, and it really depends. This is I don't. It really depends on every school. But medical training has increasingly become uh, very insensitive to gender differences, and I've had. Uh, female medical students, both in Pakistan and in England and in America, mm-hmm. detailed to me sometimes, and I mean, tell me sometimes in quite detail what type of different procedures they are asked to perform or witness or be a part of uh, during the course of their training, mm-hmm. and that it really involves exposing them to a lot of gender interaction and a lot of uh, things that they should not really be exposed to. Now, medical education could be structured in a way, according to the Dean of Islam, that a woman would get all the experience she needs in treating female patients because in our system she wouldn't ever be treating the male patient anyway, so she wouldn't really need that practice. Right? And that's an extreme exceptional type circumstance where such an emergency situation would arise. But the current medical education system doesn't cater to that Islamic sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Secondly, in terms of residency or house job or being an officer, the different terms for that, that it's quite a number of years that they have to spend on the rotations and rounds, the amount of interaction many times for long hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly uh, some of the medical students have told me that some of the hospitals and clinics are notorious for the level of inappropriate male-female interaction that takes place between health officers. Mm. Uh, so a woman is really exposing herself to many, many, many years of an environment that doesn't respect the Islamic gender norm. Mm. Even if her niya is to serve at the end, mm. if there are women medical practitioners who can serve, and I'm also going to say another thing quite bluntly, if there are also enough non-practicing Muslim women. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have to be honest Mm -hmm. that they are Muslims who have have varying levels of practice Mm -hmm. and they are women who are Muslim in terms of their iman. Mm -hmm. So we will keep them within the fold of belief, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not as observant in terms of hijab or gender interaction. Mm -hmm. And they're also going into these fields, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we would love for them what we love for ourselves. If they have chosen in their own personal life, mm-hmm. over which they have complete control, mm-hmm. not to observe hijab and the norms of gender interaction, mm-hmm. then one cannot expect them to observe that in their professional life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, if they're so, if we can say again, I mean, this would be a sort of sociological statistical survey, mm-hmm. but if we can feel that there are enough Muslim women who are non-observant in the norms of hijab and gender interaction, they're all going into medicine. Then if I was a Muslim girl who, well, that's quite a, a funny statement to make, but uh, and let me rephrase, if I was advising somebody close to me who was a Muslim woman and she wanted that Muslim woman was a woman, 
who wanted to observe hijab to the best of her ability, wanted to be amongst the pure and the chaste, wanted to lead a life that was ideal in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and she was interested in those benefits, then I would say, I think then going, it depends on the situation, but if her going into medicine necessitated that excessive interaction and gross violation of not just gender norms, but many Sharia rules, then I would say that it may be better for you to pick a different field of education and perhaps something that you could do that could be close to this would be to do maybe a PhD in biology so to make it clear that it's nothing to do with the sciences to do a PhD in biology to do a PhD in biochemistry and perhaps you know be a teacher of you know students who are doing undergraduate or postgraduate degrees or even high school uh, chemistry and biology and maybe try to especially you know, use that position to do da'wah to Muslim women, uh, you know, and at the same time, uh, you know, she may be able to make her contribution to science. Mm. So this is uh, how I would answer her question. Jazakallah khair, jazakallah. I know I've come across some situations where the, uh, you know, the boy and the girl, before they get into university, Sheikh, they actually get married to one another, so the one serves as a mahram for the other and they attend varsity together. That would be the ideal situation. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that, that I mean that solves it. That helps to a large extent uh, the issue of uh, co-education. But I'd say when they have to go on their clinical rounds, uh, that won't even if the woman is married, her husband won't be with her at that time. Mm-hmm. And there's all types of procedures that mm-hmm. they are asked to perform on male on male patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, doing that once or twice is one thing, mm. but doing that over the course of years, mm. uh, you know, when I, I have had cases where some girls, it, it was, you know, it doesn't have a good psychological effect on them in terms of their spirituality. Mm. Being exposed to see things that Allah subhanahu told them to lower their gaze from mm. and being made to do that, mm. you know, quite regularly for a number of years mm-hmm. has a certain spiritual harm. Mm-hmm. So we need to understand that, you know, uh, the khidma of deen in terms of being a woman doctor, that's a particular benefit. Mm-hmm. But how much spiritual harm mm-hmm. are you asked to take so to bring it back to more general area mm-hmm. because people do need to understand this. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the deen of Islam does not want a person to take on great spiritual harm in order to provide benefit and khidma to others in the name of deen. Right, that's why Allah said in Quran, mm-hmm. that you must first save yourself mm-hmm. and then save your ahl from the fire of Jannah. Jazakallah khairul Sheikh, we have another question here carried over from the previous weeks. Salam, dear Sheikh Sahib. We read that we can tell if Allah is pleased with someone if the Sheikh is happy with them. How does one know if the sheikh is happy or displeased with them? Uh, no, I generally would suggest to people, and I'm going to give a general answer, but you know, that particular question will be answered. Mm. I personally think that it's less beneficial mm. 
for people to focus on their, their emotional relationship with their sheikh, mm-hmm. and rather they should focus on the spiritual relationship with the sheikh. Mm-hmm. And no doubt, many of the books of the Sawaf talk about love for the sheikh. That is something that should happen naturally. Mm-hmm. It should not be something that a person is trying to think about, mm-hmm. trying to assess, mm-hmm. trying to track, mm-hmm. trying to consciously develop, trying to notice, trying to be aware of. No, that's an incorrect attitude. So as far as the emotions go, a person should not focus any part of their conscious awareness on that. So they should not be trying to discover whether they have where they stand in the emotional relationship with the sheikh. They should only be focused. Their conscious awareness should be focused on the spiritual awareness that am I doing the vicar that I've been told? Do I... Fine, I go and I sit in the front row, but am I actually practicing what I'm being taught, right? I Fine, I emotionally have a fondness for the sheikh, but am I doing what he wants me to do, right? He, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm fond for the sheikh, but have I really made him my guide? Is he guiding me? Am I letting him, am I being guided on sharia? Am I being guided on deen, right? I mean, if you have a professor and a student says they love the professor, but they don't do the readings for the class, they're not interested in the subject, they don't write a good paper, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how far is love for the professor going to take them? Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't focus consciously on the emotional thing. The emotional thing will happen naturally. And now I will tell the best part, which is the secret, not secret, but the best part, that if you focus on your spiritual relationship, mm-hmm. Allah Taala will give you a pure and a wholesome emotional relationship on His own without you having to try to develop it. And if you try to focus and develop on the emotional relationship actively, then you won't even get one that is pure and wholesome, and you will even lose the spiritual relationship. Sheikh, I'm just trying to call up this other question here that I have for you. Uh, salams. How does a salik get back on zikr after having slipped back into ghaflat? Right. Uh, what a person should do is they need to do something to jumpstart themselves. Mm-hmm. And that is really, I mean, so that is a spiritual relationship with the sheikh, right? Mm-hmm. That is the sohbah, the tawajjo, the khidmah, the you know, associating or traveling or spending time in uh, or presenting themselves and their heart to the sheikh, that is the most effective way. Mm-hmm. And uh, second mm-hmm. is to connect yourself to the realm of zikr. Mm-hmm. Realm of zikr means listen to programs like this mm-hmm. or pick up a book that is on the sobaf and zikr or listen to some recording about or spend some time with the seekers on the path, with fellow seekers and travelers on this path, but to put yourself inside the realm of zikr. So when a person puts themselves underneath the rain, they end up getting wet. Jazakallah. Sheikh, we have a, a, one of our listeners who conveys his salams to you, and he also requests for duas, and he says, a question for Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is a question for creed and aqidah. What does the Sheikh advise is critical to learn for young Muslims? 
You know, I think that young and old Muslims should not really get involved in the intellectual uh, aspects of creed and akina. Mm-hmm. The amount that a person needs to know could easily be done simply by reading, you know, under, you know, going to a short course under a scholar on some basics of iman taught from hadith. And, you know, in early Islamic history, great theologians and scholars went into extreme detail mm-hmm. uh, on certain issues. Mm-hmm. I don't think a um, non-scholar needs to even know even a summary or even an introductory thing about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, really, um, so basic, I mean, unless a person is involved, you know, sometimes people... Beyond that, I would say any knowledge of Akida should be acquired in a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a person comes from a family in which a close immediate family member may belong to a group that has some type of innovations in their belief. Mm-hmm. So they may, on a need-to-know basis, may need to know a little bit about that belief so that maybe they can do dawah mm-hmm. on their family member and bring them out of that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, I would say so beyond the most minimal level, Everything else should be on a need-to-know basis. And I really think that, you know, there are all these Akida courses and Akida books. And, you know, the early Muslims didn't start writing textbooks on this, except when there were all types of groups of all types of radical belief that arose. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that their activity was also done only for this purpose. It was demand-driven need-to-know. For an ordinary Muslim, they should say that my Akida book is Quran. And I just need to know what are the feelings that Allah Ta'ala has told me to feel in Qur'an mm-hmm. about Him. So I need tawakkul, I need shukr, I need fear for Allah, I need love for Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. That's enough of an aqidah for an average Muslim. Jazakallah for the beautiful answer. That definitely goes for all of us. My aqidah and reference to the to the Holy Quran. Again, in line with that, stay tuned to CII. I just want to announce some dates and some times and some, the websites where our Honorable Sheikh Kamaluddin Ahmad will be having a Dorai Tafsir prog- program. Uh, and this commences on the 20th of July, Wednesday, and it goes right into the month of August, um, the eight, on the, the 18th. So that's from the 20th of July till the 18th of August. And the website to connect with is www.islamicspirituality.org and zainabacademyonline.org. And Zainab is spelled as Z-A-Y-N-A-B academyonline.org. In the UK, you will be listening to this program online from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And uh, in South Africa, you'll be listening to this program 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And from the Emirates, it will be from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, in Pakistan, from 2 p.m. right up to 5 p.m. So that's going to be a dynamic program, inshallah, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala let us all benefit from this Dorite of Seed program. And just before the month of Ramadan, we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allahumma barikna fi rajiba wa sha'aban wa balighna Ramadan. Sheikh, uh, again, uh, what are you going to be speaking to the listeners on CII, our Salikin, who so eagerly wait for the program Tazkiyah on Laylatul Jumu'ah this evening, Sheikh? Uh, inshallah, we're just going to be discussing one hadith tonight, inshallah. That'll be wonderful, Sheikh. Sheikh, you may proceed. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi al-lazina sattafa amma ba'd. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم
There is a hadith, it's narrated uh, by Imam Muslim Rahimahullah, among other narrators, and it's a hadith about Sayyidina Hanzala Anhu. And Sayyidina Hanzala Anhu, he was what we call uh, a katib, he was the scribe to the Prophet By scribe, it means that when the Prophet wanted to write something down or have something written, there were a few sahaba who were his katibin, also writing down Quran, and also maybe writing down a letter or something that he wanted to send to any one of the different non-Muslims that he was negotiating with or treating with or trying to invite in the Deen of Islam. I mention this because, it, you know, when you're somebody's katib, you end up being very close to them, right? When somebody, even today, if we wanted to dictate something to someone, we would call them very close. We would make them sit right next to us, right? So Sayyidina Hanzal radiallahu ta'ala anhu was blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he was the katib of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu and therefore he got, you know, we can only imagine how many occasions that he got to sit very closely to the Prophet sallallahu and maybe many times, maybe even one-on-one or in a small group because certainly many times the Prophet when he would be dictating such things, he wouldn't be in a large assembly, but it may be that he even invited Sayyidina Hamzullah somewhere close uh, to him. So, he narrates this hadith, Sayyidina Hamzullah And then he says that Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq met me. And he asked me, anta, how are you? So another thing we learn here is that Sahabi Kram, you know, despite how busy they were, and specifically despite how busy they were with Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, they still asked about one another. I'm mentioning this because sometimes you find that students of a teacher, whether it's an alim, whether it's a sheikh, sometimes when they're sheikh and, you know, they're in the presence of the sheikh or they're in the same city or on the same trip, they become so overzealous that they start neglecting one another. They start sometimes neglecting the rights of one another. They neglect the adab they should have with one another. So one would imagine, right, that Sayyidina Abu, when the Prophet is alive, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, when the Prophet is alive on top of the surf, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, how busy he must have been, right? I mean, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was not going to waste time. And... From maybe some of our listeners, maybe they've never even heard about this first Sahaba, Sayyidina Hanzalah radiallahu anhu. Right? But Sayyidina Bakr went to him and he asked him how he was doing. So it shows that Sahaba Ikram still had this adab and they cared about one another, even when they were around or near or generally speaking in the company of the Prophet So because Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq asked him, so... He responds to him, he says, I told him that this is my condition, that I have become a hypocrite. So he used a particular word here, which Allah SWT has used in the Quran, and Sayyidina Rasulullah also used, and it comes in the hadith, 
And this is really the lowest type of human being. And Allah SWT said in Quran that the Munafiq is going to be in the lowest of the places in Jahannam. So when he used a verb like this for himself, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq was amazed. And it also shows whatever people there were. So what did he say? He said, Subhanallah ma So what, how did he express his amazement? Even their expressions of amazement were with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a very important thing that you see this when you read about Sahaba Ikram and you see it when you associate with the awliya and ulama of this day and age that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always in their heart, always on their mind. Even when something shocks them, the first thing that comes to their tongue is the praise of Allah, the remembrance of Allah, in this case the glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is something our own Shaykh Hazraji is often mentioning that we should always have these words on our tongue. Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah, MashaAllah, InshaAllah, Jazakallah, Inna Lillah, etc. So Sayyidina Bakr said, Subhanallah, Matakul, what, what is it that you're saying? And so then Sayyidina Hanzala responded to him and said, Well, when I'm with the Prophet Sallallahu and Sayyidina Rasulullah reminds us of, of Jahannam, right? And he talks to us about Binar, about the fire of Jahannam, and about Jannah, and about paradise. At that moment, my feeling is as if I'm seeing those things with my very own eyes. But when I go out from that gathering, and from where he is, right? And it's very interesting that that's exactly how Sayyidina Hamzullah you know, phrases it, that when I leave from the place where he is. That's literally how he said it. Then, what happens? I forget. And what happens? What makes him forget? So he says that I, I forget everything and I become so involved with my spouse and my children, my property. So now, it's not somebody getting involved in anything that's haram and being involved with spouses and children. And property in this sense must have been, I don't know, some small you know, dwelling or some small vegetable garden or something. But he was so worried and he felt that, you know, this is, and I show this, you know, because Sahab, you know, sort of, and I, I, not, not not to be misunderstood, but to show that Sahab and Ikram were human, right? And unfortunately, this sentence has been used very negatively by lots of people who try to equate their knowledge with Sahab or try to equate their piety. I'm not in any way suggesting that. But I wanted to show their human precisely for this reason that all of the awliya of this ummah are of the opinion that all all of the awliya in the entire history of this ummah, if you were to combine them, their combined wilayat would not even equal the wilayat of one sahaba. In other words, if you were to combine how much Allah Ta'ala loves all of the awliya that have ever lived, Allah Ta'ala loves one sahaba more than he loves all of the other awliya. Now, but they were still human people. And so it means they had human lives, they had human emotions. So when Sahaba Uliya can have human lives and human emotions, then obviously non-Sahaba Uliya can also have human lives and human emotions. But where is the Wilaya? The Wilaya comes in their closeness, by their closeness and wanting to be close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where does that come in? That comes in... Because if you think about it, 
he's saying that when I, you know, when I leave the presence of the Prophet I get so involved with my spouses and my children and this and that. But actually we realize that this is not, he's remembering, he's feeling it. He's watchful over his state. In order to notice that his state goes down, he must have been watching it. He must have been constantly thinking about the Prophet but Allah when he was with his spouse, when he was with his children. To notice that my feeling has gone down in this environment, he must have been thinking about Deen in this environment. And he was so concerned about it. He didn't take it lightly. And so this is this is this is Wilayat. That when a person even falls slightly in their level of zikr of Allah Taala, not falling into haram, I mean, let alone that, right? Just a slight reduction due to worldly activities which are actually obligations that Allah Taala Himself is obligated on us. And I mention this because many of us, we let ourselves, and I used this phrase, I think, a few weeks ago, I think the phrase I use is cutting corners or taking corners. So here I'm going to say that we let ourselves off the hook. And we think that, oh, you know, it's okay. I forgot all the Because I'm in medical school or because I'm a lawyer or because I'm teaching or because I'm busy or because I have business or because I have a family to take care of or etc., etc., etc. And we let ourselves off the hook. This is wilaya that these awliya Allah, this is now sahaba wali, they don't let themselves off the hook. And if they find even the slightest decline in their zikr, it disturbs them. How, I mean, how far did it disturb him? Just to show how he absolutely did not let himself off the hook in the slightest. He thought that this slight decline in his level of zikr while engaged in a completely permissible shari activity was enough to put him all the way into the bottom level of Jahannam such that he should start viewing himself as a monophic. So now, listen to what the greatest wali in the entire history of humanity, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Imam al-Awliya, and Imam al-Ta'ifatuna, Imam al-Sufatuna. What did he say, Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq said? He said to Sayyidina Anzala with even more taqeed, again, beginning with Allah, Wallahi, again, now, Another emotion overtook him. You see, when Sayyidina Hanzala first said that I'm a monophic, an emotion of hayra, an emotion of shock, bewilderment, wonder, amazement struck him. Now after hearing that what is Hanzala's, Sayyidina Hanzala's description of nifaq, of hypocrisy, that yeah, I'm remembering these things a bit less and when I'm with my family and children. So then now Sayyidina Bakr is again overwhelmed by an emotion. But now this emotion is a shock and a fear about himself. So he said, Wallahi inni la'ajizu mithlahada. That in fact, I swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I find the same thing inside me. Exactly what you just said, I find exactly the same thing inside me. So now what do they do? Right? Now, you know, so we had a question today asked, what should I do when I feel that I'm, you know, I've gone low and I want to start myself up again? Now these two Sahabi Kram had this, you know, that's their own beauty that they diagnosed themselves as well, but we would never diagnose something like that. But because they felt, in their mind anyway, that they had gone down. So what did they do? So this is the two of us, we went to Sayyidina Rasulullah together. Together. Right? And that's another thing. Right? They were very open. They didn't feel the need 
you know, they weren't playing games and went up and ship. Saying that Booker didn't think that, oh, wow, I think I'll go to the Fultonson later and tell him, right? And the Fultonson will say, wow, Saying Booker is so great. He thinks he's a monophic just because he, you know, is remembering Jannah and Jahannam less. They didn't, they didn't have strategies. It's, again, the, the response to the question that we had earlier. They didn't have strategies about how to have their relationship with the Prophet It happened naturally. Why? Because what was their strategy? Their strategy is about their relationship with Allah. They're trying to strategize what do we do that we're not remembering Jannah and Jahannam so much. That what are, what, when we're with our family and our children, right? As much, sir, as much as when we remember it with the Prophet So their strategy was about taqwa. Their strategy was about deen. Their strategy was about their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because their strategy was focused on that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the most beautiful, natural, and loving, and emotional relationship with Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So the two of them, they went to the Prophet And they told Sayyidina Rasulullah what happened? They just shared it. This the conversation. They just repeated the whole dialogue. And then the Prophet responded to them, right? So in some sense, and this is the Hadith, but this is one of the great beauties of the Hadith, that, you know, sometimes it's just a direct statement of the Prophet but many times it has a story that goes with it, right? You learn something about Sahaba Ikram, you learn something sometimes about the places, about the people, about the times. So Sayyidina then responded to them, and he said, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ so again, he began also by invoking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? By saying that, I swear in the name of that being in whose grasp lies my life, right? So it's a very strong way for the Prophet to say. So he told them that if you were to remain in that state of dhikr, in that state of remembrance, in that state of love and yearning, you love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hope and yearning in Jannah, and that state of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, fear of Jahannam that you attain when you are in my company, if you were to remain in that, outside my company, right? And I think different hadith have different words, but these are the words of Sahih Muslim that I'm mentioning here now. So he said that if you were to remain on that, and the word that the Muslim used by the way is zikr, literally the word zikr, if you were to remain in the same state of zikr, then what would happen? He said that the angels, and literally it's the malaikatu ala furishikum. That literally it means that the angels would, you can say, embrace you on your beds. In other words, the angels would be so fondly intimate with you. I mean, we can put it this way because I don't want to be misunderstood. The angels would snuggle with you. <laughs> That's what the Prophet said. That you would be such noble beings that if your level of dhikr as a Sahaba in Medina Manawara with your wife who is also a Sahabiya and your children who are also young little Sahabas, if your state of dhikr with them in the company of those Oliya, your wife, Sahabiya, Waliya, Oli, right? Your, your fear of dhikr with her would be the same that your level of dhikr was with me. The angels would come and snuggle with you in your beds and they would clasp and embrace you on the streets of it would mean Medina Manawa. But after saying this, right? But then he said, Wala ya Hamzala, but however my dear Hamzala, 
you should know. And he said, now this is one of the, another one of the beautiful types of hadith that the Muslim then explains something in just two words. So he says, sa'atan wa sa'a. Literally, it just means moment and moment. Sa'atan wa sa'a. And you know, the great hadith scholars sometimes they used to talk to one another in these little snippets, these prophetic snippets, and it would be like a code between them, and people wouldn't understand what they were saying. So if I was to translate, you have to open this up. What he often is saying is that, oh, there is a time for this and a time for that. And there is a time for you to be in such an overwhelming state of dhikr that nothing else is in your heart and mind except Allah SWT and your love for Him and your dreaming of the gardens of Jannah and being able to gaze upon Allah SWT and all of the bliss and happiness and contentment that you will find there. And, the, and also there's a time for you to be so fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so terrified of one's own sins and to be humbled by the enormous magnitude of the descriptions of Jahannam that come in Quran al-Kareem and that come in the Hadith. So there's a time for that. And then there's also a time for being, you know, because if you, if, when a person is in that state, a person would not able to be, to be fond to the children. I want to explain that people misunderstand that, oh, this hadith is possible suggesting the spouses and children are bad for you. No, the possible is just, and Sayyidina Hanzal was not suggesting that either. It's just that when you're overwhelmed by the fear of Jahannam, it's going to be difficult to be kind to your child. And this is, this is, this was their wilaya, that the most powerful emotion that was in their heart was their feelings about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when those feelings overpowered them, even the true and genuine feelings that they had for their spouse and children would be suppressed. They wouldn't be able to feel that because they were drowning in their feelings for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet was teaching Sayyidina Hamza al-Radan and by extension all of us that there are time for these different feelings. There's a time for this and a time for that. Sa'atan wa sa'a. There's a time for you. There's a time and a proper time and place and adab for you to be drowning in liquor. And then there's a time and a place for you to go a little bit down on that so that you can now have the proper feelings and relationship with your family and your children. And, you know, just with these, so the whole actual teaching of the Prophet is just these two words. If you want to add the particles, so three words, Sa'atan wa sa'a. Because in the beginning, the Qasam is just for you know, it, the, the oath that the Muslims swore that the angels would snuggle with you and the angels would embrace you on the street. That was just for emphasis. That was to call him to attention. But the beauty of the prophetic teaching, so this is, you know, one of the greatest things that, you know, we learn from our Mashaif. That when you sit with them and you spend time with them and you observe them in different conditions, you will learn and see the living embodiment from them that there's a time for this and a time for that. You know, I remember when, you know, in the early, mid-1990s, when I had recently, you know, uh, become a student of our sheikh. And I remember one night there was a talk in uh, Silver Springs, Maryland. And uh, it was such a, a, a moving talk. Uh, and, you know, we were all, you know, a few of us, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure the whole gathering, but a few of our close friends, were so shaken up after it that we were, you know, finding it very difficult to, you know, go in front of the sheikh or I think it was, it was, it was, you know, dinner afterwards. 
And we just couldn't imagine after that talk now going and sitting and having dinner because dinner for us is, you know, a social activity and one couldn't imagine. And and that's the Arabian Mishnah where the transition just happened so smoothly. I mean, after that talk and after that crying before you, you know, and, you know many people crying in the Dua led by the Sheikh and then, you know, then the group who was, you know, in Hidman service, they laid out the Dastakhan, they put the food and then and just falling in the natural flow of things, we all went and we sat there, uh, but we're all still very emotionally moved. But within two, three minutes when the Sheikh sat and he engaged in some light conversation over dinner, you know, it's, it, it was sa'at and was It was that this is not the moment now to be so overwhelmed. That was the moment in dua, and you're not going to be able to keep that, you know, for hours and hours. And so this is the moment to eat and engage in, you know, sort of light conversation. And so this is something that Sayyidina Rasulullah taught us, and this is something, this is, I'm not saying you can learn it only through the Sawaf, obviously tonight we're learning it through Hadith, but the living embodiment of this Sunnah, and the living embodiment of how to live that life of balance, right? Uh, and you know, I had no intention to do this Hadith until about maybe 30 minutes ago, because as the questions were coming, I was thinking of, uh, you know, what could I offer in better response to the questions, and I think that this is what we really need to learn from our dean, how to let that balance. And sometimes that balance means going back and forth, right? Because there are moments for this, and there are moments for that. Just to remind you again, uh, Sheikh is having a Dorite of Seer program and this will be on the cyberspace internet. Uh, commences on July the 20th, uh, Wednesday, and it uh, terminates on August the 18th. That's a Thursday. And uh, the website is www.islamicspirituality.org. I repeat that, www.islamicspirituality.org. And www.zainab academy. Zainab is spelled Z-A-Y-N-A-B academy online dot org. For the listeners from the UK, it commences at 10 a.m. and terminates at 1 p.m. In South Africa, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the United Arab Emirates, from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, in Pakistan, from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Just a reminder to our listeners as well, we'll be fortunate to uh, blessed with the visit of our Honorable Sheikh Zulfikar, Afi Zulfikar Nakshbandi Damad Barakatumul Aliya, uh, who will be coming to South Africa on the 14th of July. And inshallah, on the 24th, he will be having a program in Isipingo with the Khatme Bukhari Jalsa. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the opportunity of benefiting from our Sheikh. To our Sheikh Kamaruddin, again, Jazakallah wa Jazah for this valuable program on air, and we say Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.